Amen. Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the Acts of the Apostles, the second chapter where we will be looking together at verses 40 through 47. That is Acts chapter 2, 40 through 47. You can find that passage on page 1070 in your pew Bibles or page 14 if you have one of our Acts journals. This morning we are closing out this second chapter of the book of Acts, and though its focus has been upon really what amounts to a singular event, I think we could safely say it still has been a very busy chapter, hasn't it? We have witnessed the gathering together of the early church under the, direct, under the direction of the resurrected King, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been teaching them, his followers, to understand the Holy Scriptures through the lens of himself. They have been encouraged by him. They have sat at the table and broke bread with him. They had learned how to understand the events of recent history that had been transpiring all all around them in light of who Jesus was and is. They have witnessed even his glorious ascension up into the heavens before their awestruck eyes. And at the beginning of this chapter, we found this newly unified, newly united infant church gathered together, encouraged, and eagerly awaiting whatever was next for them. We found them together praying worshiping, enjoying one another's company, enjoying life together in Jesus Christ by faith. And clearly, they're waiting for something. They're waiting for the fulfillment of the promise of Almighty God to them. They're awaiting the Holy Spirit and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And of course, God is faithful. And he sends, he pours out his spirit upon his church. And they begin to immediately proclaim the wonders of God through the gospel in languages that were previously unknown to them. (coughs) However, everyone present hears and understands these wonders in his or her own native language. And for the last several weeks now, beloved, we have been looking together at the weight and the significance of this event, this pouring out of the Spirit. Last week, we looked at the second half of Peter's sermon together to this awestruck crowd on the the busy streets of Jerusalem. And we saw Peter point out the true hope that was being made visible for them. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit signaled many things in redemptive history. It spoke once again to the faithfulness of Almighty God. It also marked a new dawn in redemptive history. It gave birth to the very era that you and I are still living in. It gave clear meaning to the ancient prophecies. Perhaps even greater than all of that, says Peter. 
is that it means, this pouring out of the Spirit means that King Jesus is now fully seated upon his throne. You understand, he has arrived. And we are now in his omnipotent hands. Because of his ascension, because of his clear arrival upon his throne, Peter says, God is with us. He's even in us. His spirit is giving us understanding in these things so that we, his church, might be filled with the hope of Jesus Christ. And we see the proof in Peter himself, don't we? Peter now knows very well the word of God. He knows and now he understands what it all means. He not only understands what it means, he can now even apply it to their very lives. We saw Peter point out and explain some more prophecy to the people from King David. Specifically, he pointed them to Psalm 16 and to Psalm 110, two very well-known psalms in a Jewish community. And looking first at Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, Peter made it very clear that David could not have been talking about himself when he said, For you will not leave my soul in shame, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Peter says to this crowd, look, David's bones are with us to this day. His grave is here. We know where it is. And of course, his bones are in it. His body has certainly decayed. It's certainly been subject to the corruption of decay. But it's not so with King Jesus. His grave is also here with us but it is empty. Jesus was not left in Hades. His flesh never experienced corruption or decay. David is talking about Jesus Christ. And then he takes them to Psalm 110 and he again points out in verse 1 that David is also not sitting at the right hand of God. Verse 1 of Psalm 110 says, Sit at my right hand while I make your enemies your footstool. The promise was not that David himself would arise and ascend to the throne in heaven, but that indeed one from his line would. And that one would reign for eternity. One who would come from the line of David. And this Jesus of Nazareth Peter says to this crowd, this Jesus whom you all know, it is Him. He is the Messiah. Looking to Christ from the prophets, he says in essence, this that you now see is that. Peter is making the case to this mixed Pentecost Pentecost Day crowd on the bustling streets of Jerusalem that Jesus Christ is, is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. And he is now at the right hand of God, ruling, reigning until the appointed time for him to return and to make all things new. And he will indeed come again. This age, this era of redemptive history, is one that is marked 
with an exciting new anticipation. We are no longer waiting for him to come and to begin the restoration of all that was lost through the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. He has come. He has paid the price for our sin. He has begun the restoration of all that has been lost because of the sin curse. He lived and walked among us. He remained blameless in the eyes of the holy law of Almighty God. And though innocent, He went willingly to the cross where He paid for our sin in full by sacrificing His uniquely qualified life as the full propitiation for our sins. And praise God, beloved, He arose. The grave could not hold Him. On the third day he arose triumphant over sin, death, and the devil. And Peter says, this is him for whom we have all been waiting. And now we live in this hope. And he is sovereignly reigning over all things. His enemies are his footstool. He is now moving heaven and earth for the salvation of his people. He is even taking what you meant for evil, Peter says, in killing him. And he's using it for his holy purposes. And all who believe in him will be saved. He will move heaven and earth to save his sheep. And beloved, It goes without saying, that should be tremendously encouraging to us. We are living in this very hope right now. We have the witness of the Holy Scripture as well as the witness of the Holy Spirit upon our own hearts and minds. Because of this wonderful truth of the gospel, we can know right now that now we belong to Jesus. He has purchased us through his own blood. He is for us. He is actively at work at the right hand of the Father, sanctifying our very lives for his glory. This Jesus, who is both Lord and Christ, Peter says. Beloved, do you see it? This is the gospel and it does its work upon this crowd. Some hear it and simply dismiss it as nonsense. And they are left in the condemnation of their own sin to face the judgment of Almighty God. But others, 3,000 of them this day in Jerusalem, others believe it. And they are transformed through union with Christ by faith, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and the preaching, the proclamation of the gospel. And they will be used by God to transform the very world that they are living in. You understand, this is precisely what the gospel does. This is the cause of all that follows this very point in the book of Acts. This morning, we are going to begin looking at the effect of the gospel being faithfully proclaimed 
and applied by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you've not done so already, please follow along with me in the Holy Word of God as I read Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47. Hear now the Word of our Lord. Luke tells us, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received this word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have this morning to partake of the ordinary means of grace. We pray, Father, that your spirit would apply the preaching of your word to our hearts and our minds, that we might live more and more for your glory and your glory alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke has given us this undoubtedly abbreviated version of the Apostle Peter's Pentecost sermon that day. And I think we can say with a fair degree of certainty that it is indeed an abbreviated version because of verse 40, right? Luke tells us, and with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. He sees no need, Luke sees no need to increase the level of detail here. He has spent enough time describing the cause of the church of Jesus Christ. He has highlighted the necessity of the proclamation of the gospel being received by sinners through the power of the Holy Spirit. That has not changed, has it? This is still the mission, to tell the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to trust God to work through even something like the foolishness of preaching. We need to know, what we need to know is that this is precisely the means through which King Jesus, the risen king, is building his kingdom. And verse 41 then serves as sort of a turning point in the narrative because we find the good Dr. Luke here now eager to move from cause to effect. Look with me at verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. We have discussed the cause, now the effect. And the very first thing 
that Luke notes is that day, that day around 3,000 souls bowed before King Jesus. 3,000 souls believed by the grace of Almighty God and they found reason to rejoice in the hope of Jesus Christ. Can you even imagine? And understand, this is not some sermon preached in the comfort of a modern day stadium or even an awe-inspiring cathedral. No. This sermon is preached outdoors, outside of the buildings, amid all the hustle and bustle of a busy day of Pentecost celebration on a dirty, dusty, loud street in the city of Jerusalem. In the street. You would think that distractions of all sorts are absolutely abounding in this environment. But the the outcome doesn't support that. 3,000 souls. It does not seem natural or even likely to our modern minds, does it? And that's kind of the point here, right? It is supernatural. The Holy Spirit is leading people from the conviction of sin to the righteousness of Jesus Christ embraced through God's precious gift of faith. And it's just the beginning. It seems to me that if this was a typical American evangelical story, then we would be content to end the story right here. Do you know why I would say that? 3,000 souls, way to go, Peter! Good job. Let's give him a makeover, a nice suit, a white smile, his own study Bible, maybe even a podcast. Let's put his name on the marquees. Let's sell t-shirts all over this nation. But that's not what Luke does. That is not the effect that this mass conversion leads to. The effect is not a spiritual superstar being born at all. What is born? A glorious, unified church. Do you see? This is not a picture of a group being unified only in their love for Peter and his preaching. No, this effect of the gospel being proclaimed is a unified, devoted church. And this morning I want to point out just a couple of things here about the devotion of this church. And then look together at what it means for us. Those of us still living in the church of Jesus Christ today. And let me just say, this passage is absolutely packed with deep abiding riches for the follower of Jesus Christ to gather for the edification of the individual as well as for the church. And as always, it is my hope that you will spend some of your own time outside of our worship mining this treasure for yourself. 
The time we have allotted for a sermon simply is just not enough. For now, we're just going to hit on some, at least some, of the high points. You notice that Luke is pointing immediately to their devotion as a newly unified group, right? You can't miss that in the text. The New King James translates the Greek root word pros eo at the very beginning of verse 42 as continued steadfastly. And they continued steadfastly in. The ESV, though, translates it in what I think is a little bit clearer English. And it says, and they were devoted to it. That gets closer to the, re- the Greek root word we're dealing with here. They continued steadfastly. They were devoted to certain things as a direct result of their being gathered under the banner of belonging to the risen King, King Jesus. Again, for our purposes this morning, we're just going to make note of some of them. First, I think we need to see here that verse 42, they were devoted to what? To the apostles' doctrine. Do you see that? These apostles had sat at the feet of Jesus both during His earthly ministry as well as after His resurrection for those 40 days they were able to spend with Him just prior to His ascension. And they had been learning from Him. Learning what exactly? Well, we've spoken of this already. The apostles sat at the feet of Jesus and learned to see Him throughout all of sacred Scripture. You remember, you think back to that road to Emmaus that Luke mentions in chapter 24 of his gospel. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus taught them all things concerning himself. At the heart of the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching ministry, was showing the people of God, Jesus Christ, as Messiah. Come to save sinners just like them, just like us. They taught the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the people were unified in that purpose. They were devoted to it. You understand? They were seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and His glorious gospel at the very center of all that they did as individuals. And corporately. They were by being devoted to this teaching, that is to the doctrine of the apostles, affirming their devotion to the wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They too are saved by His grace. They are devoted to the Word of God and all that it tells us about Jesus and His saving grace. They were devoted to what the Word of God had to tell them of their own sin, their own need for a righteousness foreign to their own pathetic attempts at it. They were sinners. They, like us, were born into this world, fallen in their father Adam, guilty of sin, guilty of rebellion against the God who is. And the wages of that sin was death. Judgment, eternal torment in the fires of hell. 
However, Jesus Christ came down. He condescended to us. He left aside the glory that was His with His Father and He walked among us. He, though innocent, willingly embraced the death of the cross as He paid the full penalty for our sin by having the wrath of Almighty God poured out upon Him in our place. He died as the one and only perfectly fitted sacrifice for sin. He rose again on the third day. He ascended to the right hand of the Father in glory where the Bible tells us He now lives to intercede for us. You get the point, right? This is the truth of the Word of God. This is what the Bible is truly all about. And the church from the outset was devoted to it. They continued steadfastly in that very truth. And now they could look back through the scripture and they could see the Lord Jesus Christ at the very center of all of it. And we could get lost here. I could go off on a rabbit trail that lasted for days. I won't do that this morning. But I want to tell you he's there in Genesis 3, verse 15. As God pronounces his curse upon the serpent. And he says to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It is the seed of the woman, King Jesus, who ultimately crushes the head of the serpent in victory. He's there in the promise of Abraham to his son Isaac that God would indeed provide a suitable sacrifice for himself. As Abraham seems intent on sacrificing his own beloved son of promise, God intervenes and he provides a ram caught in the thicket. You understand? He's there in the shadows of the law. He's there in the shadows of the temple. He's there as the hazy hope of every single prophet. In the church of Jesus Christ sees it and the effect of their seeing it is that they were devoted to the doctrine of the the apostles. They were devoted to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Walking in the Spirit of God means being devoted to His Word. Not just out of duty, but drawn to it. You understand? In love with it. Longing for it. The scripture is sufficient to both build up and bless the church of Jesus Christ. They were devoted to the King, Jesus, and his word. And we need to see it. Let me ask you something this morning. Where do you think you stand on this? Are you devoted, devoted to the doctrine of the apostles? 
the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Please understand why I would ask. All this devotion of the early church is a very good place for us to just sort of stop or pause and take our own spiritual pulse, so to speak, as to where we are as a church. Are we devoted to this? First and foremost, devoted to this. We'll come back to it in just a moment. For now, we need to take note of their second devotion. And it's a bit unusual to us. Luke tells us also here of their devotion to fellowship. Do you see that? It's amazing, isn't it? Of all the things to be devoted to after the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, after the word of God itself, of all the ways that we could show our devotion to God. Why fellowship? Why this gathering together? I mean, surely it would be better for me to do something great for God. To establish a name for both of us, right? I I could build him something. Well, the truth is, maybe Mike Altman could build him something. I'm not that good of a builder. I couldn't build him anything. But I could do something better than everybody else and, you know, give God the credit for it. I could rise up early. I could stay up late in in order to memorize more of his word. Surely God wants me to establish our names as a duo of epic proportions. Surely God wants me to do that. We're, We're two peas in a pod, right? Nonsense. Gross. I would not want to serve a God who is anything like me or who is anything like you. That's the truth. They, these new converts to Jesus Christ, as a result of their being devoted to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in the doctrine of the apostles, were devoted necessarily to one another. Do you understand? This isn't negotiable. Not just physically. But spiritually, and you notice the progression here, they were translated from death to life through the Spirit-empowered proclamation of the Gospel. And now, how do they show their love for God? By doing great things for God? Through their individual acts of spiritual heroism? No. Through their being devoted to one another. You understand, they long to be together. They love to show their devotion to Almighty God through their love and their devotion to one another in their gatherings. Not just large gatherings, but small ones too. You see that here, right? This is not only confined merely to their corporate worship. Though it certainly includes it. Look at how Luke describes this devotion to fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers from house to house. Many argue that he's dealing strictly with worship here, formal worship. The breaking of bread would, of course, be the remembrance of the Lord's sacrificial death and the Lord's Supper. The other side of the argument is that it could only be the gathering for a fellowship meal outside of worship. I say I think it's both. It's early in the church. 
These things haven't been formally hammered out yet. They're gathered for worship. They learned together the doctrine of the apostles and the gospel of Jesus Christ. They celebrated it through the hearing of the ear when it was preached to them. They remembered it through with what they could see with their eyes, the sacrament administered in a worship setting, perhaps even in the courtyard of the temple to, to house a group of this size, a group that's growing daily. But their relationships with one another expended, extended well beyond just the worship gathering. And we have to see it because it's undeniable. Look at what Luke says here. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Praising God and having favor with his people. With all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Many have tried to make sense of this passage focused upon all of the wrong things here. Many worry that this is the Bible's attempt to draw us into a a sort of communal living or even communism. You know, no private property, no personal rights, that sort of thing. And of course, that's not the case. They, without a doubt, had a right to own their own property, and they saw then see fit to use it however they wanted to. This was not demanded of them. When we get to the story in chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira, I think that will be made abundantly clear. They have a right to do with what they want, with what is theirs. No, this is not surrender of personal property through coercion or anything else. This is real fellowship, in a community surrounded by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do not care about anything being their own. They're not concerned here with self at all. And we can't miss that. Motivated by the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to save sinners just like them, they have forgotten self. And are now joyfully living for the glory of God by loving one another. There's no limit to it here. They had all things in common. They're not trying to be spiritual superstars as individuals. They're not people seeking the limelight for selfish gain or purposes. They are giving up everything as individuals. And it truly seems to be nothing to them if they get to see their brothers and sisters in Christ living without need. That's that's what they love. Beloved, it's the image of God restored in his image bearers. At least the beginnings of it. And selfish ambition is not feeding this church. Selfish desire is not directing this worship or these gatherings of God's people simply to enjoy one another's company. Self has left the building. And people are taking notice. Their biblical faith lived out in this sinful world is turning heads. Did you hear that in Luke's narrative? He notes it here. He says they were found 
to be in favor with all people. They were visibly caring for one another. They longed to be together. They joyfully celebrated it whenever they could do so. And people were looking and seeing it and wanting to know what it was all about. Wanting to know of the hope that inspired this kind of beautiful community that anyone would want to have in their own life. It is attractive and it sparks a curiosity that will even lead some to their salvation. Beloved, this is a vibrant, spirit-filled, Christ-centered, loving body of believers gathered under Him, Jesus Christ our Lord, as their head. This is the church of Jesus Christ. Did you hear it this morning in Jeremiah's description of the community of God's people under the promise of the new covenant? Do you see the beauty of true Christian fellowship? Beloved, again, we're just barely scratching the surface of it here, but it is certainly here. And the Word of God is full of examples of this exact thing. And I'm just going to throw several of them them at us. I'm not even going to expound upon them. I just want them in your mind this morning, proving that this is indeed the expectation of the proclamation of the gospel producing exactly this kind of community through the fruit of the Spirit of God, before I issue a challenge to us in closing. John 13, verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Romans 12, verse 10, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Galatians 6, verse 2, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Philippians 2 verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Hebrews 10 24. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. One more, but please know I could spend hours on this. 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. This is what is found in a church with the Holy Spirit driving them again and again to the hope and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They love one another. Not just in theory, but in real words, real thoughts, real deeds, real life. They long to be together again and again and again. They easily let go of self for the better of their brothers and sisters in Christ. They are moved by the gospel to live in light of the gospel. And if you are even now still working on doing some spiritual triage... If you are taking the church's spiritual pulse, I'm asking you this morning, how does it look? 
Perhaps you can only truly answer that question from your own space within it this morning. So let me ask you this. Do you long to be with these people? These people. Do you long to be with these, your fellow redeemed brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you devoted to the gospel and above and beyond your own ideas, your own opinions, your own traditions, your own ambitions and desires? We know what love is, right? Do you love these in the house of God? It really makes you think of Jesus' words to Peter. Right? Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do we enjoy being together? Are these people the people we prefer? Why or why not? Beloved, We have to ask ourselves these questions, right? We have before us in the Word of God a portrait of what a Spirit-filled, gospel-centered church looks like. Is this our desire this morning? Are we content with the opposite of this? Do you know what that looks like? Everyone minds their own business. No one's ever vulnerable or honest about their own needs because really it's no one else's business. It's private. Never gathering outside of worship because you know you have a life outside of Sunday. Never admitting to your own faults. Never oversharing so as to be a burden to others or listening too closely so as to let them be a burden to you. can't be it. You can't make that fit with Scripture. That's not in the Bible. No one in the church of Jesus Christ should really want that. Beloved, it's not enough to just ask the question, what are we going to do about it? We must run to the loving arms of Jesus. We must never forget that we are the wretch. We are the sinner, the worm that needs Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I need it. You need it. We must repent and run to the glorious truth of the gospel and live as if we truly believe it. Because if we do that, then Scripture's clear. This is what the church looks like. This is the result. This is the beautiful fellowship of the kingdom of God. Are you praising God for it this morning? Or are you standing in resistance to it? Beloved, I pray that this is our desire. Let's pray.